This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thank you very much uh, for the introduction, Anne, and to the organizers for inviting me to participate in the symposium today. And also to all of you for coming back after the break. Um, so it's nice to see everyone again. So I'm really happy to have the opportunity to tell you about some of our recent work on mapping archaic hominin DNA in the genomes of modern humans. And actually, my talk, um, you'll see, is going to be pretty similar to our first speaker, Sriram. Um, and in fact, when he was talking, I was thinking to myself um, how nice it was, actually, that um, some of the things he was saying overlapped with what I was going to talk about because we were working on these projects completely independently. Um, we developed very different statistical methods to answer the same questions, and yet, by and large, we came to many of the same conclusions. So I think it engenders confidence in the things that we're presenting today. And my graduate student, Benjamin Verneau, and I first became interested in this question of archaic admixture a few years ago. And I think this is actually one of the most fascinating topics in all of genetics and genomics these days is all of the things that we've learned from ancient DNA sequencing. And one of the more contentious questions, I think, in human evolution has been whether or not modern humans um, mated or hybridized with archaic humans, like Neanderthals and Denisovans. And for many decades, this was just sort of an acrimonious debate, and that was largely because the data didn't exist to answer the question. But with technologies developed by Svante Pabo and some of the other speakers we've heard from this morning, Matthias and Kai. Um, and the, not too uh, many years ago, we were able to get high-quality genome sequences from the Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes. And this provided sort of unambiguous evidence that modern humans and these archaic humans did in fact hybridize and exchange genes. And as um, Matthias talked about this morning, though, studying ancient DNA from fossils still remains really challenging because you have to find an appropriate specimen, first of all, um, and you have to hope that the DNA has been preserved over um, hundreds of thousands of years. So my student and I um, thought, well, if there was gene flow between modern humans and archaic humans, maybe we could excavate ancient DNA, not directly from fossils, but indirectly from the genomes of modern humans. And to give you a, a sort of a, a little bit of an intuition of how this works, um, I'd like to argue that a little bit of archaic introgression goes a long way. And so in this schematic, I'm showing you a picture of um, 10 or so individuals. These aren't random individuals. These are my colleagues in the Department of Genome Sciences. <laughs> and this is what happens when you put your picture on the internet. Um, <laughs> so... So each line here, um, let's it, imagine, represents a stretch of, of each person's genome. And from previous work, we knew that all non-Africans had about 2% of their DNA inherited from Neanderthal ancestors. And that's what's represented by these yellow uh, chunks of sequence. And so what we w wanted to do was develop a method where we could walk along an individual's genome and pull out the parts that were inherited from Neanderthal ancestors. And the key here is that the 2% of my genome that was inherited from Neanderthals might be a little bit different than the, your 2%. So that when we aggregate the data across many individuals, we can actually recover a substantial amount of the Neanderthal genome. And actually, what I find most compelling about this approach is that as opposed to sequencing ancient DNA from a single fossil, by recovering these all-surviving archaic lineages, we're potentially... Um, getting data that was, uh, or getting sequences that were inherited from multiple archaic ancestors. So we're getting population-level data, and that will allow us to make inferences that are difficult or impossible to do if you just have genetic data from a single individual. So I'm not going to talk a lot about the details of how we scan along an individual's genome um, and look for archaic sequence, but I did want to give you a little bit of intuition. So what are the characteristics of introgressed archaic sequence that we look at? Well, what I'm showing you here is a simple schematic um, showing that 
uh, Europeans diverged from Africans about 80,000 years ago or so. And what we want to find, or if we look at lineages superimposed on this tree, we can see that what we're actually interested in finding are cases like this. So sequences that are found in non-Africans that were inherited from a Neanderthal ancestor. So what are the features that we expect uh, for these types of sequences? Well, the first is that in contrast to two modern human sequences that have a much more recent uh, common ancestor, mutation will have had a long time to act and accumulate. We want to find these sequences. So mutation will have had a longer time to act and accumulate on this lineage compared to two modern human lineages. But the other key feature is that admixture happened relatively recently, so in the last 60 to 80,000 years or so. And therefore, the Neanderthal haplotypes will still persist over sizable genomic regions. So it's this combination of highly divergent sequences that stretch over large genomic distances that allow us to accurately and robustly predict what are archaic sequences versus what are modern human sequences. And actually, the approach we're using um, is a modification of a statistic called S-star that was developed by Jeff Wall. Um, and one of the nice things about this approach is it doesn't explicitly use the Neanderthal or the Denisovan genome when making the initial inference. And the really powerful thing about that is we can potentially discover archaic lineages from groups that we don't even know about yet. Um, and actually, that's a, a major part of what we're looking at now. Um, but that will have to be a story for a different day. So what I'm going to tell you about, though, is applying this method to 1,500 geographically diverse individuals. So whole genome sequences from about 1,500 people um, all throughout the world. These are largely sequences from the Thousand Genomes Project. So this is a publicly available data set. But to supplement this, we also sequenced, uh, in collaboration with Svanti Pabo's group, 35 individuals from Melanesia. And the idea here was that we knew from previous work that these individuals should have substantial amounts of both Neanderthal and Denisovan sequence. And if we look at um, the amount of archaic ancestry that we find per individual. That's what I'm showing on this slide. And so the, this shows the distribution of the amount of archaic sequence per individual in Melanesians, East Asians, South Asians, and Europeans. And you can see that Melanesians have, on average, much more archaic sequence per individual compared to some of the other non-African groups. And the reason is as I just mentioned, um, they have substantial amounts of both Neanderthal and Denisovan sequence. And so each row here is an individual, and the bar plots correspond to how much Neanderthal versus Denisovan sequence each individual has. And if you look closely, there's a small amount of sequence that we label as ambiguous. This is sequence that we are confident is archaic in origin, but we can't distinguish, robustly at least, whether or not it's Neanderthal or Denisovan. Okay? So on average, um, Europeans have about 50 to 55 megabases of archaic sequence per individual, and this is largely Neanderthal in origin. South Asians have a little bit more, East Asians have a little bit more, uh, and Melanesians have about, on average, 100 megabases of archaic sequence per individual. So that's 100 million base pairs. So that's great. We can identify archaic sequence. But I think the really interesting thing is the things that we can potentially learn from it. So what are the types of questions that surviving archaic lineages allow us to ask? So I'm going to tell you about three things that we've been interested in. So the first is, was hybridization between archaic humans and modern humans deleterious? That is, were there bad consequences? Conversely, was hybridization beneficial, or were there some good consequences of hybridization? And finally, what demographic model is consistent with patterns of introgressed archaic sequences? So let's start with the first question. Were there deleterious consequences to hybridization? And one of the most striking things that we found when first looking at patterns of Neanderthal sequence across the genome is that it's very heterogeneously distributed. So I'm showing you 
sequence, sequences from chromosome 7, 8, and 9. So the blue ticks represent places where we find Neanderthal sequence in European individuals. The red lines indicate places where we find Neanderthal sequence in East Asian individuals. And the gray lines uh, represent parts of the genome that are too repetitive for us to study and be confident in the predictions from. And so if you squint long enough at this figure, you can see that there, it doesn't appear, and Sriram mentioned this earlier, that patterns of surviving sequence are sort of randomly distributed across the chromosomes. But you find these regions that have been called deserts or depletions of archaic ancestry that extend over really large genomic regions. And this is consistent with there being deleterious consequences to having Neanderthal sequence in these regions. And in fact, when we do extensive simulations and try to model this process, we see that there's an excess in the observed data of these depletions or archaic deserts compared to simulated data under neutral models of evolution. So what does that mean? It just means basically that under neutral evolution, so where there's no fitness consequences to the Neanderthal sequence, we really wouldn't expect to see deserts this large in the real data. So I think this is pretty compelling evidence that there was deleterious fitness consequences to hybridization. And what's really kind of fascinating to me is that if you also superimpose Denisovan sequences on top of this data, you find that there's a significant overlap between Neanderthal deserts and Denisovan deserts. So the same places in the human genome that are depleted of Neanderthal sequences are also depleted of Denisovan sequences. And again, this is very consistent with the idea that these regions maybe are harboring genetic changes that are very important to modern human phenotypes. So for example, the largest region or the largest depletion is on chromosome 7. It's about a 15 megabase um, desert. So there's lots of genes. One of the challenges in interpreting these regions is that in a 15 megabase sequence, there's about 100 genes or so. So you don't actually know which one is driving the signal that you're interested in. But one thing that caught our eye, and uh, as Shri Ram mentioned this morning, is right in the middle of this largest desert is a gene called FOXP2. And FOXP2 has previously been associated with um, being important in speech and language. And in fact, uh, work from Svante's group has shown that there's human-specific mutations in regulatory regions of FOXP2. So again, I want to be careful here, and we haven't proven that FOXP2 is driving this depletion of Neanderthal sequence in this region, but it's really interesting, and, um, and I think these deserts of archaic ancestry can help us pinpoint places in the human genome that might be important in modern human evolution. So the search space is much narrower now compared to when we first did these studies. Another question that we were interested in asking is, well, so it seems like there were some deleterious consequences to hybridization. Was there also evidence that maybe some of the sequences we picked up from Neanderthals or Denisovans was that beneficial? And probably the simplest way to look at this question is to look at the frequency of Neanderthal or Denisovan sequences in modern populations. And that's what I'm showing you here. So each dot represents a uh, frequency of either a Neanderthal or a Denisovan haplotype in East Asians, Europeans, Melanesians, and South Asians. And you can see that for the most part, the vast majority of archaic sequence that persists in modern human populations is pretty rare, so usually less than 10% frequency. But there's a number of regions that have risen to high frequency, so 60% in some cases, and some cases uh, even a little bit higher. And we've done extensive modeling, um, again, to try to determine how likely it is to see these high-frequency haplotypes in the absence of selection. And it turns out that above you know, 50% or so, it's actually really unusual for a haplotype to randomly drift up to such high frequencies. So there's about 100 or so, um, I think, really high-confident targets of adaptive introgression. And you might wonder, so what, were, what phenotypes were influenced by adaptive introgression? And so 
We knew previously that a version of a gene called EPAS1 in certain Tibetan populations was inherited from Denisovans, and it's this gene that allows them to live at high altitude. So there was already some pretty good a priori evidence that admixture with archaic humans was beneficial uh, for some genes. And when we look carefully at these 100 high-frequency archaic haplotypes, we see that they are largely comprised of genes that can be categorized into two classes. One, the immune system. So many genes that influence immune phenotypes, and in particular, innate immunity. So the part of our immune system that deals with viruses and bacteria. So that seems to be a a very... um, enriched target or substrate of adaptive introgression. And I think you could have predicted this a priori. So it's known that the immune system is often a target of selection. But the other category of genes that actually I would have never predicted a priori turns out to be a number of genes that have important functions in skin biology. Um, So for example, one of these genes, as as Sri Ram mentioned, is BNC2. Uh, It's a gene called basonuclein 2 that has recently been shown to influence skin pigmentation levels in Europeans. And um, so it's at very high frequency. Um, Each row here, again, is an individual, and columns are variant sites. And these individuals carry the Neanderthal haplotype. And you can see that it's a very high-frequency haplotype in Europeans, not found in East Asians. And finally, and real quickly, I'm just going to... um, give you a brief synopsis on the things we can learn about demographic models. And whenever I think of demographic models, um, this image from National Geographic comes to mind. Um, I think it's sort of a fascinating picture, actually. Um, My kids really like this, too, because they say I look like him. Um, (laughs) But that's uh, a different story. And so what are the things that we can try to learn? Well, we want to know things like when when did hybridization happen? How many times did it happen? Did different populations have the same or different admixture histories? And I have a postdoc, Joshua Schraber, um, who developed a really clever method of trying to infer whether two populations had the same admixture history or different admixture histories. And so when we apply this method um, to pairs of populations that we analyzed, um, the details here aren't important, but we can infer sort of this general picture of, so this is Europeans, East Asians, Melanesians, Africans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. And the main point I want to impress upon you is that maybe even compared to as recently as a few years ago, it seems like the admixture history between modern and archaic humans is much more complex And in fact, the data is consistent with multiple pulses of admixture um, between Neanderthals and modern humans, and at least one pulse of admixture with Denisovans. So in conclusion, um, I've shown you that substantial amounts of the Neanderthal and Denisovan genome remain scattered in the DNA of modern humans, that there were fitness consequences to hybridization, both good and bad, and that the history of contact was much more complex than previously thought. And I would like to thank uh, people in my lab. Um, So this guy right here in the middle is Benjamin Verneau. He was a graduate student who is now a postdoc with Svante Pabo, but he, um, by and large, did most of the work that I talked about today. So with that, I will thank you, uh, and I guess answer questions after everyone's done. So I would like to start with acknowledgement. So the, the work I'm going to present is actually the work of many, many people who were involved in, in sequencing these two genomes I'm going to talk about and helped analyzing them. I will give some more credit during the talk. So let me start by um, just introducing the samples that were used to generate these sequences. So um, both of these samples were found in the Denisova cave in the Altai Mountains in Russia. And um, one was actually a small finger bone that you see here on top. Uh, yeah. And another one was a small toe bone that you see on the bottom. And the reason that we are actually having two genomes from the same place has to do with the fact that the Denisova cave actually um, preserves the DNA in these bones 
particularly well. It's one of those exceptional places where most of the DNA that we get out of these very old bones really comes from the individual that died and are not from bacterial or microbial contamination. And um, so what this allows us also to do is to not just sequence these, these uh, genomes to a low coverage, meaning just a couple of sequences from the nuclear genome, but we can actually sequence them many times over. And how this looks like then is, is that you have um, small sequences stacking up like this that are distributed randomly over the entire genome. And um, you, you always have uh, several of those for each position. And so taken together, you have uh, 30-fold coverage, meaning at any position in it, or on an average position in the genome, you will have 30 different fragments for the finger bone. And for the toe bone, you have 50 fragments. And um, so using these genomes then to actually understand how they are related, you see that one of those uh, two genomes that we produced from this cave falls together with other Neanderthals that we have sequenced before to lower coverage. And we call this the Altai Neanderthal. And the second individual, the nuclear genome, is from a sister group of, uh, of Neanderthals that we call the Denisovan because they fall outside of the variation that we observe of Neanderthals. So they are more closely related to Neanderthals, but they are not, um, not looking close enough related to deserve to be just called a Neanderthal, and we rather call them a Denisovan. And um, so one of the questions that you might ask yourself is, why are we actually bothering with sequencing these genomes so deeply? Why do we sequence them 30 or even 50 times over? And the reason for this is the fact that we are a diploid organism. So we are actually um, having each chromosome twice. One complete set are inherited from the, is inherited from the mother, and another complete set of chromosomes is inherited from the father. And so one of the things that you can do when you have so many fragments and so many sequences is you can call uh, confidently the differences between these two copies that you have from the mother and the father. And this is really the reason why we are sequencing it so deeply, so that we can call the differences between these chromosomes. And uh, one of the most easy um, analysis that you can actually do once you have sequenced so deeply and call these differences between the chromosomes is to just ask how different are they on average. And uh, so this is called heterozygosity. And uh, you can actually put this into perspective by also showing, um, as in this plot, the level of heterozygosity, so the level of differences between the chromosomes uh, in modern humans, in present-day modern humans. And we have some individuals from Africa here and some individuals from outside of Africa. And what you can see is that Africans have about one in a thousand differences between the chromosomes that they inherited from the mother and the father, while non-Africans have between 6 and 8 and 10,000, and the archaics are much reduced compared to both of these present-day uh, human populations or present-day human regions, and um, they are at a level of 2 to 3 in 10,000. And there's even a quite significant difference between the two archaics in that the Denisova is higher than the Neanderthal. So the Neanderthal is further reduced. And um, so one can actually look into this in more detail by looking over the chromosomes. So just going in a small window over the chromosomes and just counting the differences that you observe. And uh, we have done this here for a French individual, the Denisova and the Altai Neanderthal. And what you can see is that um, the um, level of heterozygosity, so the differences between the chromosomes, varies over the genome. Um, but there is one thing that is very special, and that is that the Alta Neanderthal has this, has this very long stretch here, for instance, on chromosome 21. There are other stretches like this on the other chromosomes, where there is hardly any difference between the two parental copies. And so now what one can do is one can actually take the size of these stretches and how much of the genome is actually residing in those stretches to calculate back how closely related the parents would have to be to generate stretches like this. And uh, this is an analysis that Flora Fay from, uh, in, in Monty Slatkin's lab in Berkeley was carrying out for, for the analysis of the Alta Neanderthal genome. And what she found is that there are several different relationships between the parents uh, possible that would actually generate exactly the patterns that we see. And so I guess uh, one easy way to say this is that the parents of this individual would have to be 
at least related on the level of whole siblings to generate these, these patterns. So they were closely related. And then you can take a step further and you just take your prediction of how much you would actually expect in terms of long stretches that are looking like this, almost identical. And you just ask if I would subtract now based on what I, what I understood the family relationship of the parents would be, if I subtract this away, is there actually anything left? And this is in, in fact the case. So for the Altai Neanderthal, you still see an excess over the, the stretches that you see in the Denisova and in modern humans. And this actually means that this is not just a singular event that just once happened, that just by chance the parents were closely related, but also further back in the past there were probably closely related ancestors. And um, so another topic that I would like to talk about is archaic admixture. And so we already heard about archaic admixture from um, Neanderthal and Denisovans into modern humans. What I would like to talk about is really archaic admixture between both archaics. But be before I get to this, I would actually like to go a little bit deeper into how we actually know what signal we, we have to look for to understand that there is really admixture. And so... Um, As a, as a very simple way of depicting this, um, just imagine that you have a, a certain individual. And of course, as I already explained, every chromosome has two copies. So this individual has these two copies of, of a certain chromosome, an arbitrary one. So when you, of course, you can go back to his, to his parents and one of those copies will come from the father and the other one will come from the mother. So I can paint them now blue and red. Um, but I can also go a step further and actually paint them according to whether they come from the grandparents or from which grandparent they come. And what you see in this picture now is that there is actually a process called recombination that is actually mixing up these different chromosomes in the parents of the individual. So now you have kind of these random stretches from, from all the grandparents that are uh, painting these chromosomes. And you, of course you can take another step, another step, another step. And so essentially what this means is that you're breaking up the ancestry. When, when you go through the ancestors, you kind of jump between different ancestries when you go over the chromosome. So you change which ancestor's genome you look at. And so when you repeat this process for a very long time, and let's say you, you have um, ancestry from one population for most of the genome, but you have a couple of ancestors from a different human group hiding among your ancestors, then what the most common outcome will be is that you will have these short stretches where one of the chromosomes actually shows this, uh, this ancestry of this, um, this other human group, while the other chromosome is actually looking like the chromosome of the majority of the groups, because these stretches will be randomly placed on your, on your two chromosomes. And now we can actually use the Alta Neanderthal and the Denisova to find out whether there is any Neanderthal ancestry in, in the Denisova or whether there's any Denisovan ancestry in the Neanderthal individual that we sequenced. And so in one direction, just showing, so if Neanderthals would contribute to the Denisovan, what we would expect is that there are some stretches where the Denisovan looks very much like a Neanderthal, but on the other chromosome, we would expect that it actually looks, looks uh, like a normal Denisovan. That, that means that the two chromosomes are actually very different. And so the prediction that this makes is that if you go to to regions where, shown here on the left-hand side, so the X scale is giving you how closely related you can make this, make any, can make any particular window that you look through, how closely related you can actually make that to the other, um, other archaic. So when you have windows where the Altai Neanderthal is very closely related to the Denisovan, shown here in blue, you actually see no effect. But if you look in the same for the Denisovans, when the Denisova has, uh, has can be made very closely related, or looks actually very closely related to the Alta Neanderthal, you see that the two chromosomes are very different. And this is shown here in red at this position. And uh, so this is a hallmark sign that there is actually among the ancestors of the Denisova and some Neanderthal ancestry. Uh, the last um, signal I want to talk about is actually the one of unknown archaic material that we found in the Denisova. And so the first signal that we saw for that is really just when you look for divergence to Africa, so that's nothing else than just looking for how many differences we observe. We actually see when we take larger windows and we just compare to, to an African, that the Denisova is always a little bit more different than the Alta Neanderthal. 
So these two distributions that you see here, they are the one for the Denisova and blue is slightly shifted to the right. And you can look even deeper into this by actually looking at different allele frequencies and divide up um, your comparison in by how many Africans actually carry a certain derived variant, meaning a new variant that, that occurred sometime after the split from chimpanzee. And when all Africans are the same, you actually see that the signal is the strongest. So you see the most differences. And in an analysis that um, um, uh, also Monty Slatkin's lab uh, carried out in Berkeley with Fernando Racimo, um, what they did was essentially taking the signals that, we, that I just described and they tried three different models to actually compare how, these, um, how this could come about. And so the first model assumes that there was gene flow from Neanderthals into the common ancestor of all modern humans. The second model is assuming that all modern humans actually gave some material to, to the Neanderthals. And so these first two models are essentially um, trying to explain how you could make the Neanderthals and the modern humans more closely related. And the last model is, is, uh, is one where you have some lineage that we haven't observed, so we don't know what it is, that contributed to the Denisovans, and that would make the Denisovan more distantly related to the to modern humans. And so in most comparisons, the Model 3 was actually the best explanation that we could find for the data. And so we believe that there is this super archaic admixture of some very deeply divergent lineage into the Denisovan. Um, so what I would like to say in the end is, or what I would like to show in the end is really just a general overview of the different gene flows that we have now observed. And this picture is not quite complete yet. So what you can see is that we have um, the uh, ancestry, this, this deeply, diverge, uh, deeply divergent ancestor that uh, contributed to Denisovans. We have the Neanderthal admixture into the modern humans. We have uh, contributions from Denisova to modern humans and the Neanderthal admixture into the Denisovans that I just talked about. And there are It, it seems that there is, by now there are also other publications that say that there are contributions to Africans and so on and so on. And so I think what this all means when you sum it up is that these, these different types of admixtures are actually something that is quite common. So it actually happens quite a lot in the past and that is something that is really a transition in our thinking because originally I think we were all very skeptical that there was actually any admixture between these archaic groups. And um, with this, I would like to end and say thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. So I couldn't have asked for a better introduction for what I'm going to talk to you about here today. We heard from several of the previous speakers about the gen genetic legacy of interbreeding with Neanderthals. But I'm very interested in understanding what, if anything, is the phenotypic legacy in modern human populations. Is this Neanderthal that DNA that remains in us, is it functional? And if so, what function does it have? And so, as, as we've seen, thanks to the pioneering work of, of many of these previous speakers, we know that Neanderthal DNA remains in certain modern human populations. And if we look at a schematic of a human chromosome here. You can think of this as a long string of A's, T's, C's, and G's. Um, I've colored in blue all the locations where we've ever observed someone living today to have Neanderthal DNA in their genome. And if you sort of look across many, many thousands of, of, of European and Asian individuals, you'll see that on average around 2% of their genomes are derived from Neanderthal interbreeding as we've heard, different people will have a different 2%. My 2% is different than Ed's 2%, is different than Anne's 2%. And I want you to remember that because this is a really important feature that we're going to use later to try to understand the function of these different bits of Neanderthal DNA that remain in our genomes. And some parts of our genome are more likely to retain Neanderthal DNA than others. So in, in one extreme, we see these Neanderthal deserts, like the position here on the, uh, the right-hand side, where we've never observed anyone to have Neanderthal DNA. And then on the left-hand side, we have the other extreme, where we have up to 60% of European individuals, if you went out and sequenced a bunch of European people, would have uh, Neanderthal DNA at that location. And so 
Ultimately, this suggests that Neanderthal DNA had an influence on our ancestors after the interbreeding, in some cases perhaps positive, in other cases perhaps negative. And so for me, this, this, this raised a very big question that, that I really wanted to answer. This is, okay, so then what is the phenotypic legacy of this Neanderthal interbreeding and the DNA that remains from it in modern humans? And so I, I hope, if you, if you remember nothing else from my talk, really just two main points. The first is that, indeed, interbreeding with Neanderthals has left a phenotypic legacy in modern humans. And the way I'm going to go about trying to show what that legacy has been is using a sort of new type of resource that's just becoming available, um, and that's of large clinical biobanks with electronic medical records from patients, from hospitals, linked to genetic information. And this is a really, really powerful resource for studying the genetics of disease, but I also think it's a really, really powerful resource for studying the genetics of our recent evolution. And so if you want to, you can go to sleep now and just remember those two things, and I won't, I won't blame you. So basically, we, we got the idea for this project because I collaborate with a, a big national consortium called the Electronic Medical Records and, Gen and Genomics Network. And what this is, it's, it's a collaboration of about 10 academic hospitals from across the nation that have electronic medical record systems implemented in their in their hospitals, and also genetic information from those patients linked to their electronic medical records. And so this looks a little something like this, where on the left-hand side we have you know, John Doe's patient record. He's been coming to the hospital and seeing doctors, let's say, for the last 10 years. And we've got records of, of all those events and all the treatments he's received in that electronic form. And then someday John comes in to have blood drawn, and he says, yeah, actually it would be okay if you use any leftover material from, from this blood draw uh, for basic medical research. And if he's consented to do that, then all that information is, is sent through a de-identifying process where all the identifying information is removed from, from that electronic medical record, but the basics of the, the treatment history are maintained. And then the blood sample is also passed through and biobanked and given an ID that links it up to that anonymized version of the electronic medical record. And now, this is really powerful because it enables us to do genetic association testing on a very large scale. So what, what is genetic association testing? Well, we can let's imagine we've got a number of patients here for which we have these, these, these biobanked blood samples. And let's say we're interested in studying something about their genetics. Well, we can look at these blood samples and see at one given position in their genome whether or not they have an A, T, C, or G. And so in this example, patient 1 has an A, patient 2 has an A, and then patient N has a G. And let's say we're also interested in heart disease and whether or not this particular location in those patients' genome has any effect on their risk for heart disease. What we can do is then go look in their electronic medical record and say, all right, well, has this person ever been treated for heart disease? And let's say in this case we find that, yes, patients 1 and 2 have, and then patient N has not. And once we have that information, we can perform statistical tests for association between these individuals' DNA at that given position in their genome and whether or not they've ever been treated for heart disease. And so in this you know, simplistic example, we might say that, yes, ha having an A at this location in your genome increases your risk for heart disease. Now, of course, we don't normally do this on three people. We do this on tens of thousands of people to try to find significant associations between regions of our genome and disease. And so, now, th this is all well and good, but let's say we're interested in another disease. Let's say we're interested in arthritis and the genetic basis for arthritis. Well, if we didn't have this electronic medical record system, we'd have to go out and collect a whole other cohort of people that had arthritis and then some matched control people that didn't have arthritis and then genotype them and then test whether or not those genetic loci had any effect on the risk. But because we have the electronic medical record system, we can instead just go look in the record and say, all right, let's find a new set of cases and controls for arthritis and perform genetic association tests, again, on the genetic information we already have. So that, that's all well and good, but we're here because we care about human origins and human evolution. So let's, let's get back to that. How can we use this kind of data 
to answer this question about the effects of the Neanderthal DNA that remains in modern human populations. And so what we did was to start with data from this large eMERGE electronic medical records and genomics network from across the country. We got data for about 28,000 patients from, from across the country, and we first looked at their genotypes. We first found genetic information from about 600,000 positions across their genomes. And so you can think of this as a string, again, of about 600,000 A's, T's, C's, and G's that we've associated with each one of these patients. And then what we realized we could do was use these great high-quality maps of, of Neanderthal DNA that remain in, remains in, in modern human populations that you've heard about from Sriram and Josh. And so we could look at those maps and then intersect them with our own patients and apply those techniques to our patients' genomes and identify regions where each patient had Neanderthal DNA. And so we could do this for about 1,500 of these positions in, in these patients' genomes. And we can see where some may have Neanderthal DNA and others may not. Um, and then finally, the last piece, as I indicated before, comes from using these electronic medical record data to define a set of phenotypes or traits for each of these patients. We can ask for hundreds of different phenotypes, covering the whole spectrum of things you might be treated for uh, by a doctor, whether or not each of these people either had that, had that disease, they were a case, or they were a control, or we couldn't really figure it out, and we should leave them out of the analysis. And so then using this, this matrix of data, of genetic data annotated with Neanderthal ancestry, and then many, many different phenotypes, we were able to start testing for the effects of Neanderthal DNA on a much broader scale than, than really had been, had been possible before. And so before I get into what we, we actually find, I'll, I'll try to be a good scientist and think about what we would expect to find before actually running the experiment. And so what did we expect? Now, as, um, uh, the, the, as modern humans migrated out of... Uh, out of Africa, where, where, where they first appeared, they encountered a, a number of different environments. So they encountered different climates, you know, different levels of, of sun exposure, different temperatures, different, um, different sort of seasonal patterns. They also encountered different animals and plants that led to different diets. And very importantly, they also encountered different pathogens. And so it's been proposed that perhaps by interbreeding with Neanderthals and Denisovans and perhaps other archaic human forms that had been living in these environments for hundreds of thousands of years, in many cases, before anatomically modern human groups ever arrived there, perhaps there really was some adaptive benefit you could get from you know, spending a night with a Neanderthal. Maybe that was <laughs> not such a bad, a bad, bad trade-off. Um, but, but, so, but, you know, but this is really a hypothesis. This hasn't, hasn't been shown at all. Um, so under, under this hypothesis, we, we might expect that the Neanderthal DNA that, that could have been adaptive in, in our modern human populations would have been um, influencing human traits that are involved in interactions with the environment. So things like our immune system, of course, be one of the most important, but our skin, perhaps, and you know, perhaps also our metabolism or, or other traits related to our diet. And so... Um, we, we also expected that we'll, we might see some effects on our, our bone or skeletal structure because we, we also know about many important differences or are many, many very easily detectable differences between uh, the bones of anatomically modern humans and, and Neanderthals. So those are some of the things we were expecting as we went into this analysis. So what did we find? And now, in doing this analysis... Uh, we, we, we decided to split up our data, our 28,000 individuals, into two different sets. A discovery cohort of about 13,500 individuals, in which we'd run an initial analysis, and then a replication cohort in which we would try to replicate anything that we, we found in that first cohort. So in the discovery, I'm going to show you just some of the top associations we found between Neanderthal DNA and potential phenotypes in a European, European ancestry anatomically modern human populations. And so when I saw this, I, I almost couldn't believe it, because so what do we see at the top? We see osteoporosis, a bone trait. Then we see hypercoagulable state. So, so what is that? That's just uh, blood clotting. Your blood's too thick. It clots too much, which can lead to all sorts of problems. 
then we see protein calorie malnutrition, a metabolic trait. And so this is really surprisingly matching sort of what we, we expected. But before I go too far into interpreting these, let's talk about that, that replication analysis I mentioned. So what we did here is we looked at the other 14,500 individuals we left out of the initial analysis and tested to see whether we saw consistent effects in that group. And so luckily for, for, for four of these top uh, associations I'm telling about, we did see something consistent. We did see a consistent effect. Unfortunately, the, the osteoporosis one did, did, did not replicate there. And I should say, just as an aside, I don't think that necessarily means it's not true, but, um, but it's, it's sort of notoriously difficult sometimes to replicate these genetic associations, and we're following that up in some other cohorts. But so let's focus on, on, on these four that, that, that did replicate. So first, we, we have this hypercoagulable state association that I already talked a little bit about. So this means that your blood coagulates very quickly. And this is actually a very important part of the early immune response. The coagulation factors are like really some of the first proteins that pathogens interact with when they come into your body. And so this really fits in with this idea of the potential um, immune benefits. And we've looked into the molecular basis for, for this association, and we've actually been able to show that the Neanderthal DNA nearby, um, sorry, this Neanderthal DNA that is associated with increased co- coagulation increases the level of several nearby coagulation factors in your blood. So we have a, a very compelling sort of molecular mechanism for how that might be, might be happening. And now, I'm sure by now you've read the rest of this list and seen one that's sort of a little bit more difficult to interpret, right? And that's tobacco use disorder. And so that really just means addiction to nicotine. And so I think, you know, should we, should we be thinking about this? Are, were Neanderthals sitting around outside of caves smoking? And I, I want to say unequivocally, no. No, we cannot, we cannot say this. You should not say this. You should not think this. Um, this, this extreme example um, highlights a really important point, that the effects of genetic variation in modern environments may not actually reflect its effects 50,000 years ago against a very different genetic background in Neanderthals or in early human Neanderthal hybrids. And on top of that, of course, tobacco is a new world plant. They didn't really have nicotine existing in their environment. So, but what this does tell us is that Neanderthal DNA in modern humans is influencing a system in our body that, that is now in modern environments relevant to this trait. And in particular, this bit of Neanderthal DNA is very nearby a transmitter, uh, transporter for a neurotransmitter called GABA that's involved in all sorts of, uh, of important processes in the brain and you know, even may have a role in circadian processes. So we'll, we don't really know what might have been um, behind this, this association. So now just to move on, I want to tell you about one more analysis that we did. So in that first set of tests, we were testing for the effect of one bit of Neanderthal DNA with one trait in a human population. But we wondered, well, what if we looked at all the Neanderthal DNA that a person might or might not have in aggregate and ask whether or not that could predict, better predict someone's risk for a disease? And so we did an analysis of that. Um, and again, we found several very interesting um, associations that replicated. And now I think this, this top one is really, really fascinating. It's Neanderthal DNA. If I know your Neanderthal DNA complement, I can better predict your risk for actinic keratosis. And this is a, a in case you don't know, this is a, a skin disease. It's not, it's not terribly serious. It's, it's often seen in fair-skinned people after long-term sun exposure. And it's caused by malfunctioning of a, gene, of, of a type of cell in your skin called keratinocytes. Um, and I, I find this so fascinating for, for really several reasons. Because keratinocytes, one of their main functions is protecting our skin from UV radiation. So again, a very important uh, environmental difference between, between Africa and, and other non-African environments. But they're also really intimately involved in early stages of the innate immune response and signaling for, for the activation of other immune factors. When we look at patterns of where Neanderthal DNA falls in our genome, we see that many of the Neanderthal, uh, high-frequency Neanderthal bits of DNA are nearby genes that are involved in keratin biology. And so this is sort of taking it to the next step and showing not only is it enriched nearby those genes, but actually in modern populations, it's having an effect on a phenotype that's very relevant to keratin. So, um, but again here we'll see there's a, uh, a second 
um, kind of confusing or at least more complicated to interpret association that we need to think about, and that's depression. Um, and so again, I really want to be very clear that this is not what we should be thinking about. Neanderthals, we cannot say they were depressed. We cannot blame them for any depression we have. These are very complex phenotypes with major environmental components and many other genetic components. And the Neanderthal influence is really quite modest in, in, in the whole constellation of all the, 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 the contributions to them. So, so in conclusion, I want, I want you to remember that interbreeding with Neanderthals has indeed left a phenotypic legacy in modern humans. And in particular, it's, it's left uh, effects on, on many different systems in our bodies, our immune systems, our skin, our, our, our metabolism, and in fact, even likely our brains. And so I think largely because of the nature of the data sets we've been looking at, we've, we, we've, we've found many cases where the Neanderthal DNA has a, has a mildly deleterious effect in modern environments. But again, I want to remind you that's not necessarily true um, 50,000 years ago when, we, when this interbreeding likely occurred. And so one of the main challenges going forward is, is trying to understand what knowing something about Neanderthal DNA in a modern environment can actually tell us about what was happening back then. And so then the second point I wanted you to remember is that this was all enabled by using a new type of resource, these large-scale databases of tens or hundreds of thousands of electronic medical records from, from patients linked up to genetic information. And so I think just as the ability to sequence people's DNA at large scale has dramatically changed our understanding of the genetic basis of human evolution over the past five or ten years, thanks to many of the speakers in the symposium, I think that leveraging these sorts of data and these sorts of projects that are popping up all over the world will allow us to do the same thing for the phenotypic basis of recent human evolution. And so with that, I would like to say thank you all very much for listening and thank all of my collaborators and uh, yeah. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.